Testament and the New Testament. Will you turn in your copy of God's Word with me to Isaiah chapter 66? If you're using one of the Bibles in the back, you'll find this on page 625. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. You'll find this on page 1012. The Bible's in the back. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 and verse 8. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Thank the Lord for his word. Well, let's go to the... you for the privilege of being here again this morning. And there are words that we have just sung that are profound. They're big to say that you are my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. To, to say those words, to say that knowing you is our greatest desire. To say those things, Lord, that is a big thing to say. And we pray that there would be reality to those words, that there would be a lifestyle that bears witness to the truth of those words, that we would not just say them, but that we would live them. And I pray that this morning, that this message would be a means of helping us live those words. So would you come and would you help me? And would you do what only you can do? And I pray that by the Spirit of God that you would put a still, a hush, a quiet over this room, God. And may the Spirit of God come and anoint and bless and fall and come upon us as we open your word. May it be powerful to us, Lord. May you come, O oh God. And may we be changed through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of my favorite times of the week, not only to open the Word of God as a pastor, but to sit before the Word of God, to be instructed by the Word of God, and I hope that you are hungry this morning. Uh, what a privilege, and let's not ever take that privilege for granted that we get to hear from God. Isn't that amazing? We get to hear from God, who speaks to us very clearly in His Word, and this morning, He is going to say some things to us. Some of those things will be convicting. But some of those things will be sweet and will draw us in. So let's open our hearts before him this morning. What is one of the surest evidences or indications that a local church is alive and well? If we were to ask you that question, how would you determine whether or not a local church is alive and well? Is doing well, is healthy? Is it its God-centered worship? Certainly that's a vital component uh, without which we cannot worship God as we ought if it is not rooted and grounded in Scripture, if it is not biblical, God-centered worship, then we do not worship appropriately, so that's true. 
Is it the accurate and orthodox preaching of the Word of God, faithful teaching from the pulpit week in and week out? Certainly, we would want to insist that if a church is going to be healthy, it must be instructed with the Word of God. Certainly, we want to teach our people what God has to say and not our opinions. So we would agree with that. Is it the active engagement of all the members in ministry? And every member ministry where all the members of the church are busy serving, certainly that is a biblical model. Is it a church living on mission and experiencing a measure, a degree of success in making disciples? We're seeing conversions, we're seeing baptisms. And again, we would say that that is a good indicator of life and vitality in a local church. In fact, all these things may be evidences that a church is healthy. But there's another dimension, something that I have not mentioned yet that gives further, and I would argue more convincing evidence as to the vitality of a local church, and it's this. Is there a desire for, a commitment to, and a consistency in both individual and corporate prayer? Is there a desire for, a commitment to, and a consistency in individual and corporate prayer? The the issue is this. When the music fades, when the outreach event comes to an end, when the sermon is over, the question is this. How many members of the church, out of a deep sense of brokenness and dependence on God, are seeking God in prayer? John Piper laments the following In a recent publication, he says, By God's grace, you and I have witnessed a revival of theology that views God as absolutely sovereign and man as utterly sinful and the gospel as supremely glorious. By God's grace, we have seen a renewed interest in ecclesiology and the marks of a healthy church. By God's grace, we are watching the way this theology has worked its way in to fuel and inform the way we do missiology. A zeal for God's glory has promoted the work of missions all across our cities and into difficult places in the world. Yet in the midst of it all, something glaring is missing. A huge hole, as Piper says. And that hole is prayer. And he's right. I mean, if we look back at days gone by, we would see that people used to gather literally by the thousands, to hear the Word of God preached. But not only to hear the Word of God preached, but they would gather to pray. They would preach for an hour, and then they would pray for an hour. You read the stories, the historical surveys of, of, of different eras in, in even American history, early American history, and people would gather to preach and pray, and they would give an equal amount of time to praying as they would preaching Pray for an, preach for an hour, pray for an hour. That's a concept that's almost totally foreign to the modern church. We would never devote so much time to prayer. We don't have the patience and endurance or desire to do such a thing. I mean, for crying out loud, lunch is coming up. We got to get out of here. I mean, noon is here already and we're, we've already spilled three or four minutes over. Today, we are known for our preaching and teaching. We're known for our organizing and strategizing. We're known for our planning and church planting. But what we are not known for is our praying and fasting. And I'm speaking about the American church in general, including our church. And in this, in this, I would say that we are in profound danger of missing the whole point of Christianity. Here's the problem. While we have a right emphasis, praise God, on the preached word of God, where is the equally right emphasis on the praying of God's people? Acts says that we should devote ourselves to the word of God and and prayer. It doesn't say we should just devote ourselves to the word of God, the word of God and prayer. And so why is it that you and I can spend hours every week devoted to, in some senses, a ministry of the word while we spend only minutes, minutes each week devoted to the ministry of prayer, especially when we consider this historical fact that every mighty move of God from Nehemiah to the great awakening was always and has always been birthed in the prayers, the passionate prayers and pleadings of God's people. 
God wills for us to be a praying people. And yet we are marked by so much apathy when it comes to prayer. It would seem that we have learned to live life without an expressed need for God. Sure, we say that we need God. We utter those words. They come out of our lips. But functionally speaking, the question for us this morning is, are we really desperate for God? What would God say about it? We could interview God if if Jesus Christ, the God-man, could walk up here and articulate his perspective on our hearts and our church and the American church. What would Jesus say about us? So that's a convicting question. If we want to pray with power and effectiveness, then how should we prepare ourselves? Now, this morning, we're coming to, we're continuing this series on prayer, and there are two truths that I want to set before you with God's help. And the first has to do with our preparation for prayer. And the second has to do with our pursuit in prayer. Okay. And, and the first question is really, how do we prepare ourselves to pray effectively and with power? And the second is when we pray, what should we be doing in that prayer? What should be our main ambition, our main pursuit, our main goal? What, what are we trying to get accomplished in prayer? So first, how should we prepare ourselves for, for prayer? And, you know, if we leave that subject off, uh, we are greatly mistaken because so much of praying effectively and with power is, has to do with preparation. Just being ready, having our heart warmed and ready and receptive and, and knowing what we are supposed to do when we pray. And so turn with me to Isaiah 66 Uh, if you're not already there. And let's read again verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but... This, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If we are going to pray with power, then we need to prepare ourselves. And I would say two ways, in two ways. First, we need to prepare ourselves by having a humble and repentant heart. True prayer starts with an acknowledgement of sin. It repents. God does not listen to the prayers of prideful and self-sufficient men. God listens to the prayers of a broken and dependent people. And that, that truth is all throughout Scripture. You see, the problem here in Isaiah chapter 66 is pride. Pride is the problem with God's people here. They were marked by pride. And to draw their attention away from their privileged uh, privileged position, which they were boasting in, especially their preoccupation here with the beauty and the significance of the temple that they say they had made, all right, God goes to the heart of the matter with them and he says this, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, not a boasting people, not a prideful people, not a self-sufficient people that think they did all these things. Here's what pride is. Pride is a refusal to acknowledge our dependence on God. I love this. Charles Bridges wrote the following definition of pride. He said, Pride lifts up the heart against God. It contends for supremacy with God. That's great language. The motive of pride then is self-glorification, which is an attempt. Think about it. If you are trying to glorify yourself, that is an, an attempt, whether you admit it or not, to rob God of the glory he rightfully deserves. In other words, I don't want God to need the glory. I want the glory for this. So we're contending for supremacy with God. When we are prideful, we are fighting God for praise. Give me the praise. I want the praise. Pride is a refusal to acknowledge our dependence on God. So no wonder God opposes such an attitude of pride. Pride is destructive. Pride, we have seen, I mean, in, 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 our, in our own lives, many times that pride can ruin things. Pride can ruin a marriage. Pride can ruin a ministry. Pride can ruin and destroy a church. Pride can even can even stop a revival. Jonathan Edwards, commenting on the Great Awakening, said this, the greatest single cause for the miscarriage of revival was pride. 
in, in Edwards' view, it was pride that brought the great revival in America to a premature end. That was Edwards' assessment, who was one of the leaders of the Great Awakening. So that's a negative side here. The positive side is this, is that God is saying here, this is the one to whom I will look. The promise is, if you will be this kind of person, this is the one to whom I will look. The eyes of the Lord are on the humble, so that if we are going to pray with power, if we want to be heard by God, we must have a humble and repentant heart. Do you see that? This is the one to whom I will look. Second, we must have a blameless and pure life. This is also taught in Scripture. One of the most striking verses in the Bible about the eyes of the Lord is found in 2 Chronicles 16.9. 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is what? Whose heart is blameless toward Him. So the eyes of the Lord are searching around. God is looking. Who has a heart that is blameless toward me? And that person I will give strong support to. That's, a, that's short term. That's shorthand for saying God will answer your prayers. He will answer the prayers of a person in that condition. You think about that. He's going to give strong support because that person is blameless. You say, I want my prayers to be answered. Well, then you need to have a blameless heart, a pure life. Now, let me bend the nail over on this and see where where else this is taught. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59, and let me explain this further. Isaiah 59 is a very clear text that moves us in this direction. Verses 1 and 2, Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation Between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You know what's happening? Isaiah is asking a rhetorical question here. He's saying, is God's hand suddenly like unable to save you know, in the, in the Old Testament, it was always some of the outstretched arm of God, the hand of God, the mighty hand of God to save. But all of a sudden, is his hand withered up and is he unable to save? Has his ear suddenly become sort of defective, dysfunctional? Is it not working anymore? Is there something wrong with God's ear? He's asking a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not. I mean, just over the very next chapter, I mean, the chapter right before Isaiah 58, we read, it says this, Then you will call to the Lord and he will answer. You will cry and he will say, Here I am. So clearly, nothing's wrong with God's ear. So if God does not hear us, it's not that something is wrong with Him. It's because something is wrong with us. Something's wrong with us. But what do we say? Here's what we do. We, we have this tendency to blame God when things don't go right. right. We, we have this tendency to say, you know, something's wrong with God. I've, you know, I've been praying and, and God's not answering my prayers and he's not hearing me and something's wrong with God and he's just unwilling to answer my prayer. And we get irritated and we get upset and we may not verbalize it, but inside we are angry that God is not answering our prayer. Where are you, God? I'm praying. How many times do I have to ask you? Or something happens and we're upset at God and we blame him. And what does God say back to us? Verse 2, he says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Our sin, our sin is the problem. Notice that language. Our iniquities have made a separation. That is, they have created. In other words, there wasn't a separation there before the sin came, but sin came and what did it do? It created a chasm, a break. It created a fracture in the relationship. We made our sin, made a separation. Our sins, hear this, if left unconfessed and unrepented of, will create a breach, a fracture, a strain, a distance in our relationship with God. They will. Notice the next line. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now the face of God is represents his presence. And more than that, it represents his favorable presence. It it represents his nearness to us. It's God's smile upon us. And so I love to think about the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you. 
and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You think about that language, beautiful language of God describing his love and his countenance, his smile, his care, and his desire for his people. It's the smile of God. It's the face of God. It's the goodness of God. And there is no greater good in this life than to know that the God of heaven is smiling upon you, that his face is turned toward you, that his posture is a posture of blessing and care and comfort that his desire is for your good. I mean, there's no better place in life. And so when we read these words that your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear, what we have here is a withdrawing of God's presence from us in such a way that the heavens have become like a steel curtain in that when we pray, our words hit that steel curtain and they bounce back and God is not hearing. Our sins have alienated us from God. Now, obviously, this is true for you, especially if you're a non-Christian. And you need to know that you are separated from God and that the broken relationship that you experience between you and God can only be fixed in Jesus Christ. And that's why Ephesians, we've been in this series with Ephesians, describes your condition as cut off from God and without hope in the world and excluded from the life of God. And then Colossians says, alienated because of the deeds of our flesh. And so clearly there is an application here for non-Christians. If your relationship is broken, the thing you need to do is repent and ask God to save you and to reconcile you to himself. But let's be clear about one thing, okay? This is really, 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 really important. Isaiah 59 is not about the non-Christian. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, you know what, I'm tracking with you and all this stuff, but what in my theology, what I understand here is that I, Isaiah 59 is talking about sort of a pagan people who are alienated from God, and therefore, of course, God does not hear their prayers because they're not children of God. They've not been adopted. They're, not, they're alienated. They're estranged from the people of God and from the covenants and all that stuff. And if that's where you're going, I want to pull you back and say, it's not what the text is saying. This is to God's people. This is what he's saying. Listen, listen. Listen carefully to what he is saying. Notice the neck, the, what the text actually says. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Your God. Not Israel's God. This isn't a pagan people. God saying, your sins have made a separation between you and Israel's God. No, Israel, your sins have separated you from your God. This is serious. We're not talking about unbelievers here. When we sin as believers and leave that sin unconfessed, we are wrecked barriers before God. Sin obstructs our fellowship with God. Our sin causes God to turn his face from us. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that your sin causes you to lose your salvation. Praise God. I am not saying that. But what I am saying very carefully is that when you sin, your union with Christ is not broken. Your union with Christ is not broken, but your communion with Christ is. Your fellowship with Christ is broken as long as you remain in an unrepentant, unrepentant and unconfessed state. Now, if you confess your sin, if you are quick to repent, God is quick to Bring back his loving, sweet presence. Okay, so that's why it's so important. You hear people say you keep a short account with God. And this is why. Because your fellowship and your communion with him are hinging on that. Okay? So, and here's why God does not dwell with an unholy people. And isn't that the whole point of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation? I mean, there's this continual warning in Revelation that if you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand. In other words, I will remove my presence from you. Do you know that there are times that God removes his presence from us because of sin? 
His presence, His help, His comfort, His closeness, His nearness. He will withdraw that from us. And you feel like you have no power, no help, no assistance. You feel cold and distance. And He has removed His close, near presence. And why is He doing that? It's because of his, an act of divine discipline. Because He loves us and He's trying to get our attention. That you can't live life without me. And that you can't live in continual, unrepented, unconfessed sin. And that not have any bearing on your life. And God is trying to wake us up. And when he does that, it is very serious. A classic example is biblically is Adam and Eve. When they sinned in the garden, their fellowship with God was broken. Their relationship with God was jacked up like that. What did they do? They, what, they tried to hide from God. Who does that? Who tries to hide from somebody unless they're ashamed to be around them? And this is why some people avoid church. And this is why some people don't read the Bible. And this is why people avoid praying. And this is why they don't want to be around holy and godly people. Because they're living in sin and they are hiding from God and hiding from holiness. And that relationship with God in their life has become cold and distant and foreign and strange and awkward. And so friends, if we're going to pray with power... We need to prepare ourselves in these two ways. First, a humble and repentant heart. On this one will I look. And secondly, a blameless and pure life. Now, please understand me. I am not saying that God is looking for perfection. Again, praise God for that. He's not looking for perfection. He is looking for a genuine pursuit of these things. All right? Just a genuine pursuit to live an integrous life, a genuine pursuit to confess sin, a genuine. And you know what? You know, when, when my son, my sweet son, when he sins against me or disobeys his daddy, what, what I do is I discipline him. But you know what? When he repents, what does that do to my heart? It melts my heart and I want to hug him. And I want to say, of course, you're forgiven, son. And thank you for coming and repenting of your sin. So God's not looking for perfection, but what what he wants from you is real. Like, just be genuine and tell him you jacked everything up and that you've messed up and you repent of that. And he again responds to you with love. But if you don't do that, just go ahead and buckle up and gear up for a cold, awkward, distant, hard, difficult relationship with God. And when you're in that condition, you will probably spiral down and down and down and down. You will get into sin that you never thought you would get into. You will jack your life up so bad. I've done that. Have you done? I've done that. I, I'm speaking from the authority of personal failure. I have done that. And I know you have done that too. But let's avoid that. So if we're going to pray with power, we must prepare ourselves. Now, I want to, in the second place, talk about our pursuit in prayer. Okay, we're switching gears. This is a new topic. I just I had one sermon on prayer. These are the two things that I felt most burdened for. When we set up this series, we went around the table and said, PT, Pastor, what are you most burdened for? Uh, PK, what are you burdened for? Mark, what are you burdened for? Jonathan, what are you burdened for? And we all had different topics, which was great. These were the two things that were burning on me. How do you prepare yourself for prayer to pray with power? And please understand me, preparation is so, so important. All right, the second thing is, what are we supposed to, what are we supposed to be doing when we pray? What is our pursuit? What's the end goal? What's the aim? What's the highest ambition? What is the goal when we pray? Of course we want God to answer our prayers, but there, is there a higher motive and goal and purpose for our praying than God to answer our prayers? Is there? What, what, what do you think that is? I would say there is. There's a much higher goal in mind than simply getting things from God. And here it is. Let me put it to you in a sentence. The ultimate purpose of prayer is not to get something from God, but to be with God. Let me say it again. And, and, and this thought has revolutionized my own prayer life in that I have tried to move away from thinking of prayer in terms of what I am communicating to God in terms of my needs and think of God in terms of what I get to do in terms of being with him. So again, 
the ultimate purpose of prayer, the highest aim in prayer, is not to get something from God, but to be with God. That's our highest aim in pursuit in prayer. It's to know God. It's to commune with him. It's, it's a relationship that we're going after. We're trying to know God. So we spend time with him in order to know him. We pray, hear this, simply because we want to be with God. That's why we pray. Just because I want to be with you, God. I love you. I mean, imagine that I had a relationship with my wife in such a way that I said, the only time I talk to you is when I need something from you. And I never talked to Tina because I wanted to talk with Tina. And yet we do that with God. I mean, how unthinkable is that? And how do you think that it, God views such a thing? God, I'm here again because I need something from you. God, I'm here again. Can you please give me something? God, I'm here again because I want to talk to you about some struggles I'm having. And there's no, God, I just want to be with you. God, I just want to be your friend. It was said of, in James that Abraham was the friend of God. God, I just want to be your friend. I want to talk with you as one man speaks with his friend. I want to know you. I want to deepen in my relationship with you. I want to grow close to you. I want to feel your presence. I want to be with you. I want to be empowered by you. I want to just know you. I want to be close to you. Do you do that with God? And let me tell you, that is hard work. You know, and that's why I think a lot of people just don't do it. It's just such hard work. Sometimes it will take the better part of an hour before you sense that you're even starting to commune with God. I'm telling you, and, and if you have tried and experienced that, you will know that I'm telling you the truth. It will take the better part of an hour before you even begin to think that you're starting to commune with God. It's hard work. A simple five or ten minute prayer life, God forbid, going through a checklist of things that we want God to do for us will not cut it. And not only will it not cut it, it's dishonoring to God. It uses God to get from God what we want from him when what we want from him is his gift and not himself. God, just give me stuff. I need some stuff now. And he's saying, you need, yeah, you need some stuff. The stuff is me. It's me that you need. And so I just want to encourage you to think about prayer in a new way. There are two types of prayer, and I have found this very useful in my own life to divide these types of prayer into different sessions of prayer, to different, uh, just, just draw the distinction, okay? There is prayers of communion with God, and then there are prayers of intercession. Prayers of communion are, it's me and God relating with one another. It's private. It's me and God. We are talking. We are communing. I've got his word open. He is speaking to me through his word. I'm speaking back to him. There is a relationship then there's prayers of intercession. I'm praying for missions. I'm praying for my family. I'm praying for things. I'm pleading with God. I'm burdened for God to move and to do things. And, and I found it very helpful to, to distinguish those two things so that I can, in an unhurried way, get alone with God and simply commune with him without going at the, in the first five minutes to, here's all the things I want you to do for me. I find that my prayer can be very selfish if I don't bifurcate those things. I find that I can be very man-centered in my praying. But if I separate them, God will often come down and meet me, especially in that morning session. The morning is when I seek to commune with God. And oftentimes God will show up much more powerfully in that moment. And sometimes when you've communed with God and you sense his presence, there, that your prayer will switch into intercession. Because what happens is you feel his closeness. You feel his presence. And you sense that God is saying, I've, you've got my ear now. Okay? Because you've sought me. And now that you have my ear, what would you like to say to me? What would you like to pray for? And I've had some powerful times of intercession. But they've always come, always, after deep fellowship and communion with him. If you get those things backwards... Your prayer will be very, very weak and very anemic. Now, but if you pray for no other reason than to spend time with God, often God will move and things will happen. My most powerful times with God come from those sessions of prayer when I'm just seeking to be with him. Some of you may be wondering, well, what does that look like practically? I mean, how do you pray like that? Well, that deserves a whole session. That deserves a whole sermon. But let me say just a couple of things. The Puritans used to talk about access with God. 
That's getting his ear. And in order to get to that place where you're praying and you really discern that God is hearing you, that, that, that there's a closeness here, there's a, man, you have pressed in, you've been praying, you've been working, and you're discerning, and, and his presence is palpable and felt, and you discern that God is here with you, and you've got a total, complete audience with him, and he's saying, my son, I, you have my ear. When you get to that place, the Puritans call that access, access with God. And, and I would say to get there, you have to pray. Again, as the Puritan said, pray until you pray. In other words, it takes time. Five minutes does not cut it for me, at least. Ten minutes, 15 minutes, and you're in. You're praying, you're trying, you're seeking him. And, 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 and sometime, and it's, it's always inexplicable when it happens or why or how, and there's other resources and things that help me to pray and warm my heart. But at some moment, God comes. He comes, and his presence is felt and when that happens, you have access with God, but you got to get the engine cranked up. It's like trying, you ever start, try to start a car on a cold winter morning. It just won't turn over. You can't get the thing to start. But after it warms up and you put a heater on the engine block or you do something and you crank the engine up, it starts. And we've got to get moving and it's hard. I don't bounce out of bed and feeling this incredible zeal and Holy Spirit anointing and just pray like that. It takes time. Splashing water on your face, drinking, yes, another cup of coffee, walking around, pacing around, listening to some music, reading a psalm, something. There's work. There's effort involved. And here's, here's the s- simple thing. This is why people leave it off because I don't have time for that. I got to get somewhere. I got a job. And I would just remind us this morning, you don't have time not to do that. You can't just hit your day. God forbid, why do we do that? And I I do that. We just hit the trail. But we've got to get on our knees and get with God. I found that another pattern that's been useful for me is to start with confession. Confession of sin. And then move into thanksgiving. Remind myself of all the things I'm thankful for. And then move into praise. God, I praise you for who you are. So confession and then thanksgiving. Because when I thank God for all that he's done for me and I reflect on that, it warms my heart. But he's done for my wife and my kids and my family and my church and all the good benefits and blessings that we have. And then I want to praise him. And I find that that pattern is very helpful. And here's a very, very important piece. You have got to get to a private place. See, I'm talking about individual prayer this morning because here's the thing. If individuals in our church will learn how to pray powerfully, that will affect the whole. So this is not largely a sermon on church prayer though it will massively affect church prayer if you will get a hold of some of these truths. You've got to find a private place. You've got to shut the door, get alone, where you can talk with God out loud. This is why some of these guys used to get out in the woods. It says Jesus went to a solitary place. Why did he go to a solitary place? We have a place where you got to have some emotional expression, where you can cry. If you're afraid to cry because your kids are around, your your wife's around, then get somewhere alone. Because don't you need to cry sometimes? I do. Some, don't you need to scream sometimes? Don't you need to say, God, I'm so messed up. Help me. Don't you need to verbalize that sometimes instead of keep saying it in your heart all the time? Get somewhere alone and cry out to God. Uninterrupted. Time. Schedule it away. Then I found that music warms my heart. There are several tracks of music that really help me. Each person has their own taste, but I find that music can really stoke my heart and warm me up and get me ready for prayer. I go to those favorites, those things that really stir my affections for God. I listen to that. I pray a lot of times with music. While music's being played, sometimes those lyrics will move my mind in a direction to pray. But it's very important what you choose there, what kind of music. It's very worshipful music. And then I take a book with me and a notebook because the book I take with me is the Bible. And the notebook I take is, is just blank piece of paper because God speaks to me in his word. And as I'm confessing sin or thanking God or praising him, and the scriptures come to mind and I read those scriptures. And as I'm reading those scriptures, God speaks to me. He convicts me. He challenges me. And I write those thoughts in my, in my, in my journal. And sometimes... Here's the thing. Sometimes I can't write. I'm so broken. Sometimes I can't move. 
Sometimes I'm laying just flat on the floor. I can't even move. Sometimes I can't say anything. Sometimes God's presence is so palpable. But to commune with God in this way, you have got to block out time for this. This does not happen in 10 minutes. And so I just want to encourage you, this is a marathon. You can't run a marathon tomorrow. You start by running a half mile and then a mile and then you work your way up. But start somewhere. And I've found that those times of communion with God are very efficacious. That means they're very effective. They're very powerful. They work. God is doing things. But friends, hear me. When knowing God and being with God becomes more important than getting things from God, you will be on your way to understanding what it means to pray. And you will experience God at a depth that you never have before. Now, here's my burden. We all want to see God move, don't we? We want to see his hand move. We, we pray and we seek the hand of God. We ask him to do things. But we need more than the hand of God. We need to seek his face. He wants us to seek him, his face, not his hand first. And that's the highest goal in prayer. Psalm, one, Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Verse 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. David expands on this idea in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Listen to his language. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands. That's worship. Listen, Dave, the devil does not want you to pray like that. But he is quite happy for us to be involved in ministry, to do things at the local church, and to be very busy with religious exercises. But he does not want you to pray like that because if you pray like that, God will show up. And when God shows up and anoints you with his spirit, you can do things that will shake the kingdom of darkness. And that makes the devil tremble. But as long as you're just going through your religious exercises, no big deal. And the devil is not the least bit worried about you or this church. But people of God, if we are going to get there as a church, we need God's help and it will come at a cost. Leonard Ravenhill said this, revival tarries because there is a lack of urgency in prayer in the church. Hell has nothing to fear but a God-anointed, prayer-powered church. That's what he said. Samuel Chadwick said it better, I think. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing of prayerless studies. He fears nothing of prayerless work and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we truly pray. Oh, for the powers of darkness to be afraid of this church. But people, as I'm saying we cannot get there unless it comes with a cost. First Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And if we have any hope of being useful, if we want the power of God, we must live in the presence of God. We must live on our knees. We must have a close personal relationship with God, but it requires great sacrifice. Mark 1, 35 says that Jesus got up early in the morning while it was still very dark. He departed and went out to a solitary place and there he spent time in prayer. While it was very dark, Moses went up to the mountain. He had fellowship with God. And when he came down, the glory of God was on his face. And if we want to influence people, we must live with Jesus. We must go up to the mountain. We must get alone to the secret place. We must live in the presence of God. Your first priority, your highest calling, your greatest privilege is to know God. David said, one thing have I desired. Jesus said to Mary, one thing, or Martha, one thing is necessary. Paul said, this one thing I do. We are to be a, a group of Christians about a very few things, just a few things, knowing God, making him known, knowing God, making him known, praying, reading the Bible, knowing God, making him known, knowing God is the grand purpose of our life. It's the highest aim in prayer. And if we do that, if we seek him in that way, we will know something of God's breath, of God's anointing and power and influence like you have never known before. My question to you, dear friend, is this. Have you known that influence? Have you known it lately? 
Have you tasted it in prayer and worship and preaching and personal ministry and mission? There is a ministry of the Spirit of God. Paul confirms it. He says, we came to you not in cleverness of speech, but we came to you in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He told the Thessalonians that when my word came to you, it did not come in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. We need men and women who are moving in this power. There is an influence of the Spirit of God that is related to utterance of speech. So when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, what is the evidence of that? He says the evidence is that we begin to speak to one another in hymns, in songs, in spiritual songs. There is verbal, anointed utterance that comes from the influence of the Spirit of God. When we speak to God in worship, He speaks back to us through His Word. Then we begin to speak to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs, words of exhortation, words of encouragement. When God comes upon us in that way or in on you in that way, your mind is illuminated. Your mind is expanded. Your heart is enlarged and strengthened and encouraged and emboldened. Your mouth and tongue are loosed And like a flow of water, there's an extraordinary precision to your speech and power and influence and authority attached to your words that men know that when you are talking, you have been with God. Something is different. Jesus spoke, it says, as one with authority and power, not like one of the scribes. We don't need nice guys. We don't need scribes. We don't need empty academic theologians. We need men and women endued with the power of God who are anointed with the Spirit of God and will take the Word of God into the darkest places of the world. We need churches that are filled with men and women who through their disciplined life of sacrificial prayer receive a greater measure of the Spirit of God and empowering for their ministry. Listen, a man, our, our natural gift is not enough. Only an anointing from the Spirit of God can penetrate a man's heart. So in that relationship that you're seeking to establish for the sake of Christ, it, you're going to need more than your gift. You're going to need more than your charisma. You're going to need more than your natural gifting. You're going to need the Spirit of God. That means we have to be on our knees. This is non-negotiable. So how do we secure such an influence and power? Well, the first thing I want to say is that it has to be sovereignly bestowed. It is given by divine prerogative. The spirit blows where he wishes. I mean, think about it. Paul did not ask to be saved. Paul did not ask to be filled with the spirit, but he was. He experienced a sovereign outpouring of the spirit. He blows where he wishes. And in that sense, we have very little control. But hear me. It also ought to be responsibly sought through sacrificial prayer. There's too little praying today, and I'm, and I'm so thankful to see a resurgence of reform thought and solid theology, but our intellectual comprehension of the truth, our dynamic giftedness, all the great dynamic churches that you see, all of our programs, all of our great things, all of the fun, engaging things, our ability to be accessible or appropriately contextualized to our generation, none of that stuff will replace the influence of the Holy Spirit upon a church and upon a people in that church. And my question to you is, have you known that experience? Whether dramatically, I mean all in a rush, or whether slowly and progressively go to the closet and pray for power of, for the power of God. And may God give us a church filled with people who have that anointing. Well, we've talked about our preparation for prayer, what kind of life we must live. And if we want to pray with power, we said that it will require a man or woman that is humble and repentant, a blameless and pure life. And again, God is not looking for perfection, but he's looking for a genuine pursuit. And secondly, we talked about our aim in prayer. We said that the ultimate purpose of prayer is not to get something from God, but to be with God. And if that happens, you will experience God and his influence in your life at a depth you have never known before. So that's the preparation and the pursuit of prayer. Now, as we close Here's what I want to do. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And uh, this is typically, normally the time when we just finish the sermon. We sing a closing song. We receive a benediction. And we go home. Right? I mean, that's the normal schedule. That's normally how it works. But today, we're going to do something different. Um, We're going to switch that up. And I want to take a different direction altogether 
as we close. I want us to express a real brokenness and dependence on God as we close. And I want us to confess our great need for Him. I don't want you to be thinking about your clock. I don't want you to be thinking about the watch. I don't want you to be thinking about what's going on. I want us to repent. I want us to repent of our self-sufficiency. And I want us to plead with God to make us again desperate to know Him and to commune with Him in a new way. And you know what I want us to do? I want us to... This is the, this is the word that I, I just want to lay on you, on your heart right now. Come away from all your busyness and get with Jesus. Come away from all of your busyness and get with God. Church, hear me. Come away. Come away. See, this is the sweet draw of Jesus. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you to be with him. Pull away from your busyness. Come away from all that activity and all that rush. And get alone with him. And you know what he will do? He will reward you in secret. He will show up with his presence. He will meet you there in a powerful and felt way. Try him. He will reward you. So I want us to pray. I want us to come aside from the routine. I want us to be a church on our face before God. And I want us to have complete freedom for for a moment here to pray. Complete and total freedom to confess our sin. If you need to look at your wife or your husband right now, and you need to pray and, and confess your sin to them for the way you've... For the way you've failed to lead or love or serve... If you need to confess your hardness before God, your heart. Your lack of engagement with God. Your selfishness. The fact that you care so much about your plans and what you're doing. And so little about God and his glory. Then you confess that. I've put a couple of open mics out. And I just want you to be real. And I want to ask you to go to those microphones and pray. Pray for our church. God, help us. Pray for yourself. How selfish have we become? How worldly. Help us. Let's take a moment of silence and then please get out of your seat and just, we're going to have just a moment of prayer. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we do truly want you, and we ask your forgiveness uh, for being uh, so task-oriented, for having uh, at times uh, uh, nothing but lists when when, uh, you are worthy of all admiration 
and praise and glory just for who you are. And we have uh, failed uh, to admire you uh, as we ought and to be full of uh, thanksgiving and praise and, and uh, just deep gratitude for who you are. You are our Father. We can scarcely take it in. And we want to spend time with you all alone. Pray you'll help us. You'll transform our church. Give us the, the private, secret, broken heartedness uh, before you. We love you. We've not shown it. We've loved ourselves too much and our own plans and our own will, our own purposes. We want to see your glory. We want to be renewed. We ask it for the glory of Christ. Amen. Father, um, I confess, Lord, that this sermon speaks directly to me. And I am the one who fills my time with empty things. And I find myself short on time because I've made it that way. And I've not sought your face. And I've become a poor leader in my home. I don't do enough for the kingdom at all. And I seek my own benefit, pleasures. I value my time. It's an idol. And God, I ask just that you would forgive me that you wouldn't turn your face away. Lord, but that you would draw me back in. And that you, not any other thing, not the things you give, but you would be my all in all and that my joy and my fulfillment would come just from being with you and nothing else. Forgive me, Lord, for you are so worthy. You emptied yourself and you gave up everything and you came and Everything you did was for us. And I don't even want to give you my time. Mm. God help us, Lord. Oh, Lord, that we would be a praying church mm. and that our prayers would be, mm. just as Pastor Jonathan spoke of, yes, filled with power, yes. filled with the desire just for the fellowship of you. Yes, Lord. So grant us that, Lord, because there is no greater thing, just as we sang in we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell on high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. <clears throat> To revive the spirit of the lowly. Oh God, I confess to you that I'm too much of a Martha. Busy, busy, busy. When I need to be Mary. I need to love you, Jesus. For you have come to the lowly. The lowest of the low. I have not sought you for you, but only as the prodigal son's older brother. I've only sought you for what you, your gifts. Oh God, might we know you deeper? For you are so great, so far above us. And yet you came down in Christ that you might lift us up out of this mire, out of the pit that we created. Mm. You'll have called us to yourself. Mm. Why do we want to keep going back to the mire? Mm. Why do we look for satisfaction and, and purpose in things rather than our God, our creator? So I repent here before you, before my brothers and my sisters, 
and ask that you would make me to be more like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Lord God, I who have failed you in every way ask your forgiveness. You who are eager to forgive and are fast to forgive. Thank you, God. I just beg you that I have failed to seek your face. And I have failed you in every way. I who am dead in sin. But you bring us back to life with your word. Yes, Lord. Thank you. And your word is life. And I beg you, Lord, Mm. that I who have failed, you will look look over that and throw this failure into the sea. I do repent because I want to. Nobody's making me do it. Mm. I'm doing it because I want to. And Lord, I just want to thank you for letting us hear your word. Knowing that your word is life, even when I am dead in sin. I beg you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, everything you did, you did so that we might be able to have fellowship with God. Mm. You died on the cross. Not ultimately that our sins would be forgiven. Mm but so that we might be able to come to God without guilt and condemnation. Yes, Yes, thank you, Lord. Lord, it is your sacrifice on the cross. We have access with our God because Mm. of you. And we demean, we we lower the value of your your work on Calvary when we don't pray. Mm. Mm. Forgive us Mm. for being so consumed, so preoccupied with ourselves, Lord. We are so love ourselves so much show us your glory God show us who you are so that it consumes us and we forget about ourselves Lord forgive us for giving ourselves to religious works and do-goodism and moralism And not vital, mm. glorious mm. communion and fellowship with yes, you. Lord. Help us, Lord. We want our lives to be filled with that. So deliver us from the deception and the the mud puddles that we might swim in the ocean. Lord, we need you. We need broken yes, hearts. Yes. Our hearts have become so callous. We can say the right words. We can pray the right prayers. We can act the right way. But God, in our hearts, only you can break them. Only you can reach down to the very depths of our being and break them. And that's what we pray for today. Amen. God, break our hearts again. Yes, yes. And restore us to that first love that we once had when we knew our Savior died for us so that we might know you. Mm. Lord, we need you. We cry out to you. God, help us. Because of Jesus. Yes. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you, God. We praise you that you are, that you hear our prayers, that you are res- responsive to us, God. And we pray and we ask you forgiveness for false expressions of religion, Lord, for inauthentic hearts, Lord. And we thank you that you have the power to help us overcome our pride and that, Lord, I pray for the secret sins that are represented all across this room, God, that you would keep us from being a people that are trying to hide anything from you, Lord. And we praise you that you not only convict us of sin, but that you cover our sin. Thank you for freedom from sin through Christ. Thank you for the ability to overcome sin by the Spirit. Thank you that you can transform us into the holiness of Christ and that that would be seen in us. Lord, cleanse us by your Spirit. Lord, we pray. And people of God, as we continue, as we just close in a song here to worship, and I pray that you would, just your heart would be stirred and that we would give all of our praise to Him. So let's continue to pray through this song and let's give all of our praise to Him. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit of God ignites the worship of Christ. 
the Spirit of God ignites the worship of Christ. And He ignites us to worship Him. And so I want us just to lift our voices in praise to God. And just even as we say, God, you are worthy. You're worthy of all praise and glory from every man, every woman, every child in this room. You are worthy of glory from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun all across the globe. That the mountains and the hills and the valleys all declare your praises. Creation sings your praise. Nothing is beyond your knowledge. Nothing is beyond your control. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You're the beginning and the end. Lord, you are Savior of our souls. You're the one who died for us on the cross. You rose from the grave. You are risen and exalted, the one seated on high at the right hand of the Father. You enable us to come to your Father, to know you, to come with boldness and confidence. And we pray to you as our King. We praise you as the only one, the firstborn over all creation who has control over all things. You are our strength and our hope and our life and our love, everything. And God, we long for the day when we will see you face to face. And we will know you in your glory and your fullness. But until that day, God, may we not sit and do nothing, but may we seek you with all of our hearts. So we pray, God, that you will receive praise from Heritage Baptist Church and that you will inhabit the praises of your people here and that our worship would be pleasing in your sight and that your name would be lifted high in the city of Owensboro because of your people, Heritage Baptist Church. So, God, as we close in song, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand to our feet.